8,000 vehicles rolled off factory assembly lines. And England's cricketers have lost their deciding T20 match against the West Indies. They were bowled out for just 132 in Trinidad, meaning a 3-2 series defeat. That's the latest. I'm Tom Harrigan. K107 News. You probably think you're pretty good at multitasking behind the wheel. I mean, you have to multitask to drive. So what's wrong with checking your phone? The thing is, your brain simply... quick reply, affects your concentration, and makes you less able to react to hazards. If you use a mobile phone while driving, you're four times more likely to crash. Think. Put your phone away. If you're like Dave, who orders his weekly supermarket shop online, or like Sandra, who renews her insurance through a comparison site, or even Alan, who orders his office supplies online, you can be raising free donations every time you shop. When you shop, renew or order online through easy fundraising, thousands of big brands will donate to organisations like K107FM. And it doesn't cost you a penny. Search Easy Fundraising and K107FM and make your money count. On air, online and on your smart speaker. Alexa. Hello. Play K107. This is K107FM. And so, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, but the war isn't over in the Middle East or Ukraine. Fighting continues amid calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. And in Kyiv, what Ukrainians fear more than the continuing barrage by Russia is that they be forgotten by the West. For a decade, duelling Scotland's backbone, A9. The government drops its gender bill court battle. And Kate Forbes calls for unity, not a Highland coup. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with the Christmas edition of Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Hollywood. At the end of the day, we are all deckhands on the ship. So our job is to ensure it's in fine shape. And that's my commitment, rather than, as some have suggested, waging a coup. The only coups I come across are the Highland variety in my constituency. It's Christmas week, and in the east the shining light is the shimmering of MSPs travelling in one direction towards the cradle of Scottish democracy, the chamber at Holyrood. Here they gather as gifts are given, a council tax freeze across the land, the lowest income taxes, except for high earners, in all of the UK, and a £550 million boost for Scotland's NHS. But Christmas cheer did not last here. The local government umbrella body, COSLA, says the budget will deliver service cuts and job losses. The Conservatives say the budget means people earning the same pay here will pay more tax than their equivalent in England. And the delayed duelling of the A9 has brought groan upon groan. The Angel of the Highway Transport Secretary, Mary McAllen, announced all would be well by 2035. But when Murdo Fraser last looked out, there was no feast, for all was uneven. Single track here, a bit of duel there. What our weight here is as nothing compared to the weight of the people of Perth and Kinross and the Highlands and Islands, who have been waiting for years to see this vital project completed. 
with an SNP government in power who have delivered a mere 11 miles of dual carriageway in 16 years. And throughout that period, too many lives have needlessly been lost and more will die as a result of the delays we have heard about today. At best, we will be waiting another 12 years for this project to be completed, and that is the most optimistic outcome we can hope for. Now, the Cabinet Secretary did her best to deflect criticism onto the UK Government, but I would gently remind her that the SNP had kept their promise to complete the duelling by 2025, then the challenges she identifies with inflation and her Government's capital budget would not have been an issue. Now, today, Presiding Officer, we were expecting to hear that a contract had been placed for the Tamatan to Moy section. Even that has not been delivered. Instead, the best we have is an expectation that there will be a contract award in summer next year. So one year on from where we were at the start of this year, we are precisely no further forward. So can I ask the Cabinet Secretary three things? Firstly, what guarantees can she give us that this contract award for Tamatan Tamoy will now actually be done and on the timescale she has outlined, given all the slippage and timescales we have seen in the past? Secondly, in relation to the remaining sections, what confidence can we have that the timescales set out today are actually deliverable, even supposing that the funding can be found? And thirdly, how confident is the Minister that there is appropriate civil engineering contracting capacity to carry out these works? And what discussions has she held with industry to determine their willingness to tender for the contracts that are being proposed? There shall be no let-up, says Mary McAllen, for verily there are new ways of funding the route originally pledged by the end of 2025. Commuters and villagers should all take comfort if not joy. The A9 drilling project is a complex project. Indeed, it's actually 11 complex uh, projects. But as of today, it is a complex project with a comprehensive delivery plan. And I hope that even Murdo Fraser um, can welcome that. I think the, um, the, the, the critical uh, theme in all of the points that he raises is about certainty, presiding officer, certainty as regards to Matt and Tamoy, certainty as regards the remainder of the programme. The plan that we have set out today has sought to foreground certainty of delivery. But as I said in my statement, we have carefully balanced that with the other factors that we must consider, namely the need to minimise disruption, market capacity uh, and, um, of course, uh, affordability. So with all of that taken into account, what we're publishing today provides the greatest certainty that I am able to provide, bearing in mind that this is a large project with significant complexities significant interdependencies, all of which are actually susceptible to a variety of external factors, not least the financial volatility that we have become so accustomed to under Murdo Fraser's government. The UK government is calling for its Section 35 court costs to be paid by Holyrood. Scott Secretary Alistair Jack used the procedure to block the Scottish Parliament's gender recognition legislation passed a year ago. First Minister Hamza Yousaf took Westminster to court over the action and subsequently lost. His option to appeal the court decision has now been dropped, although the bill itself has not yet been dumped. 
Alistair Jack used Section 35 for the first time in the 25 years of devolution. Now he wants his money back. I welcome the Scottish Government's acceptance of the court judgment, which upheld my decision to prevent their gender recognition legislation from becoming law. The Scottish Government chose to pursue this litigation in spite of the cost to the taxpayer. These resources would have been better spent addressing the priorities of people in Scotland, such as growing the economy, cutting NHS waiting lists and improving our children's education. The UK Government now intends to lodge an application with the court seeking our expenses in defending this matter. By the time you hear this, Parliament is in Christmas recess, but it's been quite a week in Holyrood. On Tuesday, there was a budget already dubbed the most difficult or worst, depending who you listen to, since devolution began almost 25 years ago. And on Thursday, the budget was reflected as members gathered to question the First Minister. Well, this week is also the 35th anniversary of the Lockerbie bombing. It may be hard to believe how the years have rolled by since that tragic night. And whether you followed it on the news or were there to report it, as I was, it is an unforgettable time. A night that was crafted with badness in mind, revealed also the great goodness of the people of Lockerbie and beyond. We begin FMQs with Conservative leader Douglas Ross. Today marks 35 years since the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103, which killed 270 innocent people. My thoughts and prayers, and I'm sure those of the whole chamber, are with their families, friends, and those in the Lockerbie community itself who fell victim to this senseless act of terror. Can I ask the First Minister that in this week of the SNP's budget, which has led to everyone in Scotland who earns more than £28,850 paying more tax than workers south of the border, in total 1.5 million Scots paying more than people doing the exact same job elsewhere in the UK, does Hamza Yusuf think it's fair that a majority of Scots will pay more tax than people south of the border who earn the same wage. First Minister. Officer, can I uh, also add my thoughts and indeed my prayers to all of those who continue to feel the impact of the tragic, terrible terrorist attack uh, in, in Lockerbie uh, on the 21st of December uh, 1988. Uh, this uh, year, of course, marks the 35th anniversary of that attack. I spoke to David Mandela actually just this week and both of us were reflecting on the incredible courage that we saw uh, from not just emergency services, but indeed from the local communities. Uh, many of them, who their stories are not known, who are not named, uh, but through their courageous action, uh, ensure that there's an enduring uh, bond uh, between families uh, that were impacted both here in Scotland and indeed those in the United States and across the world that were impacted. My thoughts continue to be uh, with all of those who feel that uh, loss. Uh, let me say, in relation to the issues around uh, the budget, uh, first and foremost, let's make it absolutely abundantly clear that the majority of those in Scotland will pay less tax compared to those in the rest of the United Kingdom. No ifs, no buts, no maybes about it. And this budget, at its very heart, is about values. The Conservative Party, in their autumn statement, chose to give 
those uh, like Douglas Ross on higher salaries a tax cut of £754. In contrast, we are asking the top 5% of highest earners, like Douglas Ross, to pay a little more in tax. And by doing so, we're able to give our NHS over £500 million of an uplift, a real terms increase to our NHS, where, of course, the Conservative Party have cut funding for NHS in England. So, yes, we will prioritise an uplift to the NHS. We'll prioritise an uplift to education. We'll prioritise an uplift to police and to fire. And, of course, it is the Conservatives who prioritise a tax cut to the wealthiest, like Douglas Ross. Those are not values that I believe in. They're not the values Thank that you, I believe Scotland believes in either. Douglas Ross. <clears throat> Of course, at its heart, this was a budget from the SNP which was about Scots paying more and getting less. That's what's going to happen uh, as a result of this budget. And these SNP tax hikes on Scottish workers will damage our economy and risks forcing highly skilled, valuable workers out of Scotland. Ian Kennedy, well, the First Minister is saying not true. He's repeating it. He's saying not true. So let's read to the First Minister what Ian Kennedy, the chairman of the British Medical Association Scotland, said. His quote is, one of the unintended consequences of this measure may push more of these doctors out of the NHS to jobs elsewhere or retirement or force them to cut overtime. We could lose those nurses, doctors and specialist NHS staff for good. Does Hamza Youssef accept his tax rises could force key workers out of Scotland's NHS? First Minister. Presiding officer, it is awfully brave, and that is one word for it, for Douglas Ross to talk about the NHS. In the week that there's junior doctor strikes happening in NHS England, but not happening in the NHS in Scotland. Not only that, of course. We've made sure through the choices we've made in this budget, there's a real terms increase to NHS spending in Scotland. And there's a real terms cut to the NHS in England because of the choices the Conservatives have made. And Douglas Ross, every time we ensure that we have progressive taxation in Scotland, he stands up and suggests that there'll be some kind of mass exodus from Scotland. Well, the statistics simply don't bear that out. The national records of Scotland Statistics from 2021 show that 56,000 people came to Scotland from the rest of the UK, UK a net in-migration of almost 10,000 people. And why are they coming here, presiding uh, officer? They're coming here because when they are here in Scotland, they get free university education. They're coming here because if they, get, they get free childcare, free school meals, because they get free nursing and personal care. Those are the choices that we are making. And you know what else they get? We have the best paid nurses here in Scotland anywhere else compared to anywhere else in the UK. No, Thank wonder, you, First no wonder we haven't lost a single day to strike action in the NHS here in Scotland. Thank you. Officer. Douglas Ross. I was simply quoting the chairman of the BME in Scotland and we get a rant from the First Minister. Let's be, let's be very clear. 
the UK Government is providing the highest ever level of funding to the Scottish Government. Now, tight budgets are purely the SNP's fault for wasting taxpayers' money. Well, they laugh. It would be funny if it wasn't so serious. The wastage from this SNP government Members, on let's hear Mr. Ross. Float, on doomed court cases, on Ivy League degrees for water executives before we even start on the bar bill. And as a consequence of SNP decisions, shops, pubs and hotels here in Scotland won't get the same rates relief as businesses in England and Wales. The Deputy First Minister is trying to shout down my question um, Mr. about Ross, hospitality. Mr Ross, I would be very grateful if all members could resist the temptation to contribute while they have not been called to speak. And I would say too that I think um, front benches have a particular um, responsibility to lead by example. But of course each and every member of the Parliament has a role to play in that good behaviour. Mr Ross. Yeah. Got to say that the smug smirk from Michael Matheson and others on the front bench is really disappointing. Because what I'm what I'm speaking about is as a consequence of SNP decisions this week, shops, pubs and hotels here in Scotland won't get the same rates relief as businesses in England and Wales. This is what the Scottish Hospitality Group said. Many Scottish hospitality businesses will struggle to survive and customers will see prices increase because of this. And the Scottish Grocers Federation said this. It beggars belief that the Scottish Government has once again failed to pass on the 75% relief for retail seen elsewhere in the UK. So, First Minister, why are the SNP putting Scottish businesses at a disadvantage? First Minister. And this is why, presiding officer, Douglas Ross has no credibility when it comes to economic matters whatsoever. Not only did he demand, of course, that we previously, that we previously imitate and copy Tory tax cuts, which would have meant we'd have £1.5 billion less to spend on vital public services. He demands we spend every single penny of UK government consequentials on business relief and tax cuts. If we had done that, we would have seen real-terms cuts to the NHS, real-term cuts to education, real-term cuts to the police service, real-term cuts to the fire service. We simply won't choose to do that. And if we had spent the paltry £10.8 million that the UK government in their autumn statement gave to health consequentials, that would have funded five hours of NHS Scotland activity. We make different choices here in Scotland, presiding officer. Why? Because our policies mean that, yes, while we ask the top 5% to pay a little more in tax, they get more for it. And what we simply won't do is copy Tory tax cuts for the wealthy at the expense of our public services. Douglas Ross. Uh, last week, we heard uh, a bold claim 
from an SNP Cabinet Secretary that world leaders were lining up to get advice uh, from this SNP Government. Now, it, it got me wondering, who, who is this that's been calling for the advice? Has Justin Trudeau been on the phone looking for a camper van? Maybe it's uh, Emmanuel Macron calling the Health Secretary to hear how to stream the Celtic match uh, from Morocco. Maybe, maybe it's Joe Biden asking for advice how to Members. deal with a disastrous predecessor at the heart of a criminal investigation. I, I don't know. It could have been any of those things, of course, it would not have been asking the Nats how to build ferries or how to run an education system. And they definitely won't have been asking Hamza Youssef for economic advice, because he's making hard-working Scots pick up the bill for his mistakes. He's putting Scottish businesses at a competitive disadvantage. He's driving key NHS staff away, and his decisions mean 1.5 million Scots will pay more than people south of the border. Really, First Minister, is this all Scotland can expect from high-tax Hamza? Yeah. Mr Ross, I, Mr Ross, see, it, no, First Minister, sorry, it is very important that members address one another courteously, and that is using first names and surnames and avoiding other such names. First Minister. You see, this is the difference between us, presiding officer, that Douglas Ross is standing here advocating for himself as one of the 5% top highest earners in the country to get £754 extra in a tax cut from his Conservative colleagues. The difference is that I'm advocating to make sure that we get a real terms increase to our NHS. That's the difference between us, presiding officer. I believe in an increase to our NHS, an increase to our education budget, an increase to police officers, an increase to fire service, as well. And what do you get for our progressive taxation system here in Scotland? You get, of course, the best paid NHS staff here Mr. anywhere Ross. in the UK. You get the baby box. You get free prescriptions. You, of course, get free nursing and personal care. You get child care, uh, the most generous offer of child care anywhere in the UK. And under the Tories, you get a Brexit we didn't vote for. You get a mini budget that tanked the economy. You get a Westminster cost of living crisis that's harming millions of households across Scotland. No wonder, presiding officer, the Tories haven't won an election in Scotland in over 70 years, in almost 70 years. And under Douglas Ross's leadership, that ain't changing anytime soon, presiding officer. Labour's Anas Sarwar also reflects on Lockerbie and later lists what a horrid year it's been for the First Minister. I'd like to extend my deepest sympathies to the families of those who lost loved ones in the Lockerbie tragedy 35 years ago. My thoughts are with all those both in the emergency services and the local community whose bravery and resilience after the event touched us all. And today we take time to remember everyone affected by this tragedy. And as we break for the Christmas recess, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all the staff of the Parliament for their hard work throughout the year and to wish you, all members across the Chamber, all the staff across the Parliament and, of course, the people of Scotland, a very Merry Christmas. President officer, this year started with Hamza Youssef as Health Secretary and throughout the year, things in our NHS have got worse, not better. Over 425,000 patients waited more than four hours at A&E this year. Almost 55,000 of them were there for over 12 hours. And at the start of the year, 767,938 people were on an NHS waiting list. Now that stands at 800 
and 28,398. First Minister, why is it that everything you touch breaks? First Minister. Uh, officer, you know Anna Sarwar loses the argument when he goes for the personal attacks, which is what he does regularly uh, and uh, very often. Let me give Anna Sarwar some of the statistics, of course. In the budget that we have brought forward, which Anna Sarwar and his Labour colleagues have, of course, opposed, we are giving a record investment of over £19.5 billion to the NHS. That is a budget, of course, that is ensuring we have the best NHS paid staff compared to anywhere in the UK. It's a budget that gives, of course, a pay uplift to our care workers. As for NHS waiting lists, of course, there are challenges. The global pandemic has impacted health services in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, and indeed in England and right across the world. But we are making progress. If we look at outpatients, uh, long waits and outpatients. I can hear the Labour benches shouting, we're not. Well, let me give you the statistics. When it comes to outpatients, the longest waits, those two-year targets, the numbers waiting over two years for a new outpatient appointment is down 69%. Uh, uh, when it comes to inpatients, numbers waiting longer than two years for inpatients uh, was reduced by 26%. Uh, percent. So we'll continue to invest in our NHS wouldn't it be good if Labour supported a budget that is giving record investment to our NHS presiding officer? Yeah. Anna Sarwar. <laughs> presiding officer, I was, uh, I was quoting Hamza Yusuf's record, and let me quote it again. You were the transport minister when the trains were never on time. When you were justice secretary, the police were stretched to breaking point. And as health minister, we've got record high waiting times. No, I'm not quoting Jackie Bailey. I'm sure even she would struggle to be that harsh. I'm actually quoting Kate Forbes, who sat round the cabinet table with Hamza Youssef. And on Tuesday, we saw the consequences of SNP incompetence, waste and a failure to grow our economy. Affordable housing funding cut by 200 million in the middle of a homelessness crisis. Mental health services cut in real terms in the middle of a mental health crisis and the Fuel Insecurity Fund scrapped altogether in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. This is the most devastating budget in the history of devolution. So why is it, on his watch, that Scots pay more and get less? First Minister. Actually, on, on, on my watch, of course, because of the actions that the Scottish Government has taken, it's estimated that 90,000 children will be lifted out of poverty yeah. this year in Scotland. And you know what won't help? What won't help with tackling child poverty is a two-child limit that Anna Sarwar now supports retaining. What won't help, of course, is a bedroom tax that Keir Starmer and Anna Sarwar now, of course, support retaining. And on my watch, of course, and this government's watch, we have more young people from areas of higher deprivation going to university than ever before. And yes, yes, there was challenges in the budget. I'm not going to pretend... Uh, otherwise. Let's look at why there's challenges. There's challenges because we've had over 13 years of Conservative austerity. Let me, let me read what the Welsh Labour Finance Secretary said. Briefly, First they Minister. Said, this is the toughest financial situation Wales has faced since the start of devolution. Our funding settlement, which comes largely from the UK Government, is not enough to reflect the extreme pressure Wales faces. So why is it that Labour and Wales have the backbone to challenge Tory austerity, but Anna Sarwar and Scottish Labour don't. Anna Sarwar. <clears throat> Presenting officer, 
representative said, don't worry, in, in 2024, we're getting rid of them. What we need to do is get rid of the SNP incompetence at the same time uh, as well. Because I'm surprised he didn't talk about his so-called progressive tax rise, which is going to raise £82 million. That would buy you a fifth of an SNP ferry that hasn't even sailed yet. He is simply not a serious politician. And this First Minister is so out of touch. Members! This First Minister is so out of touch. He thinks if you earn almost £29,000, you should pay more tax in Scotland than in the rest of the UK. These are not the people with the broadest shoulders, but they're being forced to pay the price for his failures in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. Now, Presiding Officer, 2023 will be remembered as the year when the SNP were found out. They have broken the NHS, they have broken the justice system, they have broken the housing system, they have broken the public finances, they have broken the public's trust, and they seem to have broken their party in the process. 2023 was a bad year for the SNP. Does Hamza Yusuf think 2024 is going to be any better? First Minister. Talking about broken, all Anna Sawa does is sound like a broken record, presiding officer. Time and time again, he comes here demanding more money for public services, but opposes every single revenue-raising power and policy that we bring to this parliament. And of course, that's the Anna Sawar of 2023. The Anna Sawar, who is touting for the Labour leadership, put out a letter demanding a 50p rate for those who earn 100,000. What happened? What happened? That was before. Presiding officer, he, he mouthed, that was before. Members. So the, the one thing that absolutely won't change in 2024, presiding officer, is that Anna Sarwar will say one thing one day and then another thing another day. Because we know, presiding officer, presiding officer, we know that Anna Sarwar is not a serious politician. He doesn't think for himself. He waits until he gets the memo from head office. And I don't know, I don't know if Anna Sauer has sent his letter to Santa, but if not, Briefly, she should First ask Minister. for a backbone, presiding officer, because if he finds that backbone, Thank maybe you, he'll First stand Minister. up for Scotland as opposed to standing up First for Keir Starmer. And the First Minister will be joining me later in the programme to look back on his year in power as he prepares for a very busy 2024. Politics change but never stop. It affects everything we do. I'm Charles Fletcher with The Week in Hollywood. Join me here for coverage of the Scottish, UK and European parliaments. It's a crucial election year where you once again have a choice. Who's in, who's out. The ups, the downs. Join me, Charles Fletcher. Bringing Holyrood home. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood with Charles Fletcher and coming up in the next half hour. Former Finance Secretary Kate Forbes on this week's budget. And the First Minister talks of the dark days when his family was trapped in Gaza. So it's been the budget statement this week in Holyrood. Finance Secretary Shona Robertson has outlined her spending priorities for the year ahead and now it's over to Parliament to debate and discuss in the new year. Ms Robertson says it's the most difficult budget of the devolution years. Opposition leaders have rubbished it and, as I mentioned earlier, Kozla says it doesn't go far enough for them and warns of service cuts. 
One person in the chamber knows very well what it's like to prepare and present, then negotiate a budget settlement. I asked the former SNP leadership contender and member for Sky, Lachaber and Badenoch, Kate Forbes, how she felt as it unfolded. Well, I can assure you it was a lot more relaxed than it might otherwise have been because it, there's nothing quite like a budget. The weeks running up to the budget are incredibly intense, but of course nobody can see you're working until it's finally published. And perhaps there's uh, an inevitability to the opposition's questions, because irrespective of what's in the budget, of course there will never be enough money for everything that people want to see invested in. But by and large, what you want to try and do is to help people appreciate your priorities and what you've done and what you've been unable to do with the budget available. And in your time and under the current uh, Finance Secretary and the former and present First Ministers, you've all said, that's great, oppose, have questions, but come and tell us where you want us to take the money from because there's a finite pot. Do they actually do that? Well, it's differed from year to year. I always made a great effort in the run-up to the budgets I introduced to engage with opposition spokespeople extensively and always went in with the aim of actually trying to secure as many budget agreements as possible. Now, unfortunately, many fell at the last moment because there just wasn't enough money. But I was so proud in the last budget I did to secure two agreements with the Liberal Democrats, who'd have thought it, and the Greens, which perhaps was more expected. But I think that's how Holyrood was designed to operate in terms of that collaboration around things like the budget. But it does require a maturity and a pragmatism which is sorely lacking, I think, in Scottish politics. And the understanding that a devolved government's budget is fixed You cannot make a bigger cake. All you can do is slice up the cake that you have as fairly as possible. You talk about collaboration, yet you're very clear that you would like to see an end to the Butte House Agreement and stop collaborating between the Greens and the SNP. We're coming up to a new year. Is it time now for that new start? Well, my concern has been less to do with the collaboration which we would like to see actually across all the different parties, and more to do with the substance of the Butte House Agreement. And these views will not come as a surprise to any of your listeners, I'm sure. But already some of the core aims in the Butte House Agreement have had to be changed or ditched for good reason, like banning fishing in 10% of Scottish waters as part of the highly protected marine area. So my argument is that any government, any party, should constantly update its offering to the people and its policies to reflect the current needs and priorities. And I think people's needs and priorities around the extreme pressures caused by the cost of living, and that should be first and foremost, and perhaps the Butte House Agreement should be revised and reviewed to reflect that. So dump the Greens? Well... Probably in my uh, leadership contest, um, that might have been uh, a fair uh, summary, but 
just in case anyone's forgotten that was a contest I lost. <laughs> so I think that the current First Minister it won fair and square and it's his prerogative. And of course, he is very committed to the cooperation agreement. And uh, as a backbencher who's very supportive of uh, the current uh, government and the current leadership, um, you know, I my job is to stand up for my constituents, which I continually do on the basis of the policies rather than the general arrangement. You know what horrible people we are in the media tower and we find stories where there may not be stories and maybe there is a story in this. Are you gathering troops to have a leadership? <laughs> Are you hankering for the leadership and waiting for the First Minister to tumble? Uh, no. And, you know, just before the outcome of the leadership contest, I said when asked that it was highly unlikely that I would run again. And actually, I haven't changed that position. My view is that there is no uh, vacancy right now, that secondly, parties stand on fall or fall on the basis of their unity, and that at the end of the day, we are all deckhands on the ship. So our job is to ensure it's in fine shape. And that's my commitment, rather than, as some have suggested, waging a coup. The only coups I come across are the Highland variety in my constituency. Getting to your constituency can sometimes be a bit of a trauma if we are driving on the A9. What do you want to see happening with the A9? I, perhaps more than anybody else, drive the A9 for more hours than I can Um, count. Uh, I go up and down it at least twice a week um, and I live just off it. And just a couple of days ago, I overheard a constituent who was just about to get in the car to drive down it say, I hate the A9. And I think many of us could share that. The SNP committed to duelling the A9. It's been front and centre of every campaign that I can recall. It's been in my own election leaflets So we will tolerate nothing less than full duelling of the A9 between Perth and Inverness. It must be done. The government has said that it will commit to completing it. And so the question is that it is the question is around the timetable and the funding to do that as quickly as possible because it cannot come too soon. And this goes back to baking a cake. You've only got so many ingredients. There are only so many ways the money can be spent. Is the A9 really so important? It's essential. It, dueling it truly reflects the national nature of the SNP. If the SNP is truly representative of all of Scotland, there can surely be nothing more important than duelling Scotland's backbone. And that is the A9, connecting, essentially, Stirling with the furthest reaches of the Scottish mainland. Now, I'm a big advocate for other roads too, not least the A82, because that is equally important. But for now, I think the commitment has been made on the A9 and it must be delivered. How important is religion in public life? question should be how important is it to Scotland's people because Scotland's public life should reflect 
our citizens. And despite the fact that I think Scotland is far less religious than it perhaps used to be, it's still important. And in a representative democracy, I think that all minorities should have a voice, including those of faith. What will you be doing this Christmas? Well, I... I've got lots of young people coming and going over Christmas. Three step teenagers who will be coming home from university, uh, probably with their various friends. And uh, that means a lot of cooking, a lot of hospitality and trying somehow to keep the house under control, which is probably a fruitless task. And how about the youngest of the children? She is very excited. She absolutely loves the lights, the Christmas tree. She goes around talking about Santa. So (laughs) I think she's expecting a full stocking. Um, Although I think probably if I were just to wrap up some empty boxes, that would probably satisfy. Kate Forbes, thank you very much for joining us on the Weekend Holyrood and wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas. And to you. Now, he took over unexpectedly when Nicola Sturgeon suddenly resigned from office on the 15th of February. Hamza Youssef got locked into a tough leadership battle with Kate Forbes and Ash Regan, but he emerged the victor and joins me to look back at the past nine months. I suggested they've been eventful. Always a pleasure, always a pleasure, uh, Charles. And to call it an eventful year, I think, would be the understatement of the century. Certainly has been. I mean, I think it's a difficult enough job to take on, but there have been events upon events upon events that uh, some may kindly or unkindly say may have distracted you from the day job. Did you feel distracted as you went into this new position? Well, look, I think being First Minister uh, is a job that, uh, because you are the leader of the country, means that every single day there is issues that you've got to try to deal with. There are sometimes... Um, issues you've got to react to that are out with your control and they're always the hard ones uh, that, that, that you don't have control over and then there's the focus on that which you are in control of and that's the job of government in particular you know, we are in control of how we choose to spend our money what policies we choose to bring forward and that which is out with our control we've got to do our best to make sure we don't get distracted by it and that's been uh, part of my ethos to say to the team focus on that which we are in control of and the rest sorts itself out. So that's been the, the general kind of uh, ethos of the last kind of nine months is, is get on with that, which we do have control over. Uh, and let's ensure that we get back to um, a, a strong focus on, 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 on delivery. But there is a turning point, isn't there? And I think you've reached that, gone beyond it, if I may say, First Minister, where you now look as if you have I been there. In the beginning of the job, naturally, there's an interest and you know here's the new guy it's quite novel being the new first minister people want to know who you are who your cabinet is who your deputy first minister is but you very quickly get into a position of trying to put your own stamp and own authority on the on on the role as first minister and various milestones help with that launch of my prospectus the program for government of course this week the budget and um, again, I think that absolutely gives people a sense of who you are and what your values are. And the budget is a, just a classic example of that. I mean, that is a demonstration of what our values are. 
not everybody will agree with uh, you know the, the progressive taxation that we brought forward and raising tax for those who are in the top five percent but that's our values we believe that we should do that in order to invest significant uh, amounts of money in our public services and make sure they get a real terms increase as opposed to a real terms cut so um i, I genuinely think that there's a huge opportunity now for the government and for me as first minister to really show people what we who we are what we stand for and what our values are Looking at the budget in particular, uh, we heard what happened uh, with opposition leaders in the uh, session of questions to you today. COSLA, the umbrella body for local government, has come out saying that it's just not going to work, that uh, what has come forward is not the final settlement that's going to give a, a full council tax freeze and enable services to continue. I think you would have expected that kind of response, did you? I don't think I've ever, in the history of devolution, uh, seen a budget take place in COSLA to say that's enough money. Uh, thanks very much. Um, so look, th that is the nature of, of um, the budget process. And of course, it's still got a way to go in terms of the process. I had a very good meeting uh, straight after the budget, actually, with the president of COSLA. And uh, she, of course, raised some levels of concern, uh, some areas where she thought the budget was very positive. So we'll keep working with COSLA. But remember, what we are offering COSLA here in, uh, is, is a significant uplift. Uh, and funding, and uh, you know that's kind of I think it's around about a six percent uh, increase to their to their funding. But also, what we're doing is a number of areas that were previously ring fenced were baselining into the general grant, so giving them more flexibility, so more money, more flexibility in how to spend that money. Um, and when it comes to council tax fees, giving them an above inflation kind of inflation busting. 5% in order to cover it. I mean, I could have just given them inflation and said, look, we know where inflation is at the moment. We know where it's forecast to be. And, you know, I don't suspect any of you will seek to raise council tax above inflation. Why would you in a cost of living crisis? But we'll give you above inflation. So it's a really good settlement for local, local government. But there's a process to go and there's a vote to go, uh, obviously, in, uh, next year. So we'll continue our dialogue with, with COSLA on these matters. This is the start of the budget process. I'd like to turn to highs and lows, First Minister. Um, I think you possibly have many to choose from. It's a typical journalist question. What's been the best part of the job so far and what's been the worst? So, you know, when I was um, I was speaking to the former First Minister um, during the midst of the election contest, I remember Nicholas said to me at one point, look, if you do get the job, um, the best thing, is every day you get the opportunity to make someone's day and it can be something really small like taking a picture or writing them a note or it can be something really transformative like a policy proposition that you bring forward that's really changing people's lives but every day in this role you get the chance to make somebody's day and that's absolutely true absolutely true so the best part of the job of being first minister of course and, and representing my country uh, you know, the only country I, I call home and the country I love, to me, is a huge honour. But the highs are every single day I get the opportunity to make somebody's day. Um, but, you know, I, I also take great pride, not just in being First Minister in Scotland domestically, but representing my country in the world stage. You know, being able to represent Scotland at COP or Climate Week or, you know, in international engagements, uh, to me, uh, being able to do that on behalf of the country, it's a huge, huge honour. And the low, what has been that point where you've thought, is this actually worth it? 
so I've never had that, I have to say, that moment genuinely. I never had a moment where I thought, is this worth it? Because it, it is absolutely worth it. I mean, there's real difficult moments. Look, in terms of lows, I think it was a real hard one for us, and I can't go into the detail of it, obviously, but the police investigation was clearly a really difficult moment for the party um, and really difficult in terms of the trust that people have in us as a political party um, and, and knowing the people involved as well uh, as, as, as you know, for as long as I have uh, has, been, has been difficult. There's no pretending otherwise. I think I'd be fooling your your your, your listeners um, if they if, if I said anything like that. So that's been that was a particularly challenging moment when 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 the police investigation broke. But again, that's out with my control. It's something we've just got to let it let it play its course, and I've got to focus on uh, what uh, what I'm in control. There was an area and a time where you were not in control and something that was immensely private to you, you brought into the public um, domain. And that was when your family uh, was trapped in Gaza, a huge uh, troubling time for you. How did you feel about making that such a, a public knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I, from a personal perspective, I don't think there's been a lower moment. I mean, we were talking previously about you know professional lows, but as a, from a per- personal perspective, I have to say the four weeks that my in-laws were in Gaza are probably been amongst the most difficult four weeks um, of my life, little Nadia's life, let alone their lives. And, and and it was difficult. There was no way we were never not going to be able to make that public. Um, you know, we, we didn't talk about it for a few days, given the real concern that we had about getting the family out. And if we were to speak about it, any repercussions of what I said um, being felt by the family in Gaza. And of course, Nadia continues to have family there. Her brother's still there. Her grand's still there. Her nieces and nephews are still there. Her cousin's still there. Um you know, it, it was extremely difficult, both trying to be a supportive husband, trying to be a really supportive son-in-law, doing my best to see if I could get my in-laws out. And at the same time, being the First Minister, who's got a responsibility to a whole country, who's really feeling uh, grief over what was happening, not just in Gaza, but of course, what had happened in Israel on the 7th of October, and, 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 and not just from the Jewish community, but they particularly felt it, but of course from communities that felt uh, the grief of that entire situation. So trying to also show moral leadership uh, at that point. Um, yeah, all, all of that pressure on, on my shoulders and amongst the time when it was my first party conference and um, other sorts of things. Uh, yeah, it was a tricky, tricky period. And now they're home and now they're safe and are they well? So they're home. They're safe, but they're really traumatised. I mean, I think it's hard for me to describe just how traumatic that four weeks was for them, from a mother-in-law in particular. So if you imagine from their perspective, they've seen the horrors of war. They've seen bodies blown apart. They've seen children killed. They've seen the elderly killed. They've seen hospitals targeted. They've seen refugee camps blown to pieces. So they've seen all that. They've witnessed it. Not, not somewhat distant from it uh, or, or a news report, but they've seen it with their own eyes. And they come back here and they cannot understand how the world has not put a stop to it. They just cannot, they, they can't comprehend it. And they're obviously speaking to the family every day. 
uh, a brother-in-law, uh, as, you, as you probably know, is a doctor in one of the hospitals in Gaza, um, sees indescribable scenes of uh, horror every day. So they are home, they are safe, and that's the most important thing, but they are severely traumatised, and I don't think they'll be able to get over that trauma particularly easy, easily. I think um, in my lifetime anyway, I've never seen this level of death or destruction. And the word ceasefire being um, really a controversial word. So mm. phenomenal when you think about it. Never in my time have the calling of stopping and ceasing hostilities with over 7,000 children dead. Has that ever been a, a difficult call to make? But for some it continues, including, I'm afraid, the UK government, including, of course, the leader of the opposition, and including also, of course, the United States. And I think those positions um, I can't comprehend, nor, frankly, could I justify. Which takes us to this festive season, the time where we are being good with each other and uh, with family and friends, hopefully, although some people do find it, as you've said in the chamber, uh, a really uh, difficult time of year. But I hope you're going to have a happy festive season. What are your plans? Apart from giving a pint of blood, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah I will be donating blood, which I'm looking forward to. And doing a bit of volunteering uh, as well. Um, look, I, I really enjoy the Christmas and festive period. It's just a time for me, and, and this is more important given the role that I'm in just now, but a real time for me to catch up with family that I, I don't get to do so uh, often during the year. So seeing aunties and uncles that I haven't seen I think for, oh goodness, probably the entirety of the nine months I've been First Minister, to my shame. So I'll be, be spending some time seeing relatives who, who might be a little bit disgruntled by the fact that I've not, not made time for them. Um, and also just spending time with my own immediate family um, as well, my, my, my girls, uh, my wife. Um, but I'll be doing a variety of things. I'll go to, actually intending to go to Midnight Mass um, uh, just, just uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, intend to uh, I'm in charge of the turkey for Christmas, so it's a tandoori turkey, uh, which uh, I've made for the last three years and seems <laughs> to go down well. So I'll be making that. I'm in charge of that. And uh, yeah, in Hogmanay, um, I'm not sure quite our plans, but it'll be be one with the family uh, anyway. So I'm looking forward to a bit of downtime and, and, and I'm hoping that it's a genuine break because um, 2024 promises to be a very busy year indeed. And that's The Week in Holyrood at Christmas from Caledonia Media. I'm Charles Fletcher. Parliament is now in festive recess, but do join me again over the holidays for special editions of the programme. You can also hear them, of course, at a time of your choosing on SoundCloud or Replay. Merry Christmas. Nala Cradell. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light From now on our troubles will be out of sight Have yourself a merry little Christmas 
make the Yuletide gay From now on our troubles will be miles away In olden days, happy golden days of yours. Faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more through the years. We all will be together If the fates allow Hang a shining star Upon the highest bough And have yourself A merry little Christmas Faithful friends who are dear to us Gather near to us once more Through the years we all will be together If the fates allow So hang a shining star above the highest A merry little Christmas Online at k107.co.uk